Thank you, Brett. As we come to uh, this time where we hear God's Word, before we do that, we're going to recite the Apostles' Creed. We do this most every week. It's a way of affirming uh, that which we believe is this ancient creed summarizes uh, what we believe uh, as the universal church. So if you, uh, believer, would repeat this with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. At this time, children may be dismissed to Children's Church. Often we have um, a testimony or some type of uh, ministry moment. We're not going to do that today, but we will be doing that as we move forward uh, into the fall. One of the things we're going to do is talk about the why. Why we do uh, what we do here at uh, Christ Redeemer. We say, in, in short, that our vision that we are people transformed by grace for the city. Where people, where community comes together, we'll talk about what that means. Why do we focus on a people, not so much a place? What does it mean to be transformed by grace? What do we believe about grace that's so powerful and dynamic that it impacts us, but doesn't just impact us, it impacts us for the city. So we'll be talking about that in the next few weeks, the why of our vision, so that you will know as a church, as we think about moving out into the fall, what it means to be the church, what, are, what we're about here at Christ Redeemer Church. I hate to do this to you, but I'm going to ask you to stand one more time as we read this section of God's Word, probably the most difficult passage in Galatians, um, so it'll be fun to kind of jump in, but uh, we'll read it together as we make our way. Uh, we're in Galatians 4, there it is, 21 to 31. This is God's Word. Paul says, Tell me, you who have desired to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children of slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that, just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman, her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord, right? Sounds interesting, doesn't it? 
Um, King David is, uh, you know, the, the sort of chief figure, one of the chief figures of the Old Testament. You remember, right, David and Goliath, uh, the, the stones uh, thrown and, and kills Goliath. Um, but David, um, a man after God's heart, he commits adultery. And then he lies about it. And then he sends uh, the woman he committed adultery with, Bathsheba, her husband, to the front of the lines in battle in 2 Samuel so that he will surely die. And he does die. So he's committed adultery. He's lied. He commits murder. He tries to cover it up. What would God do to such a man after his own heart? He sends a prophet. He sends Nathan. What would Nathan say? This is what he says in 2 Samuel Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. So David, the king, man after God's heart. Nathan the prophet. What's he going to do? Nathan came to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and he gave it to him. He, he grew it up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Nathan addressed David, uh, not directly, not said, Hey, David... Uh, You shouldn't have slept with her. You shouldn't have had her husband killed. You shouldn't have lied. Those are all true. Nathan could have said that. But he approached him through what? Through a story. He approached him. He captured something of David's heart and motion. David was riled up. He was angry. How dare this man? And then Nathan, what, flips the script and said, that's you, buddy. (laughs) That's what you've done. It's what good storytellers do. It's what Jesus does. How many times the Pharisees or, or someone comes to Jesus with a question, Jesus says, I got a story for you. There were two men. Or a man had two sons, and one son did this. Or they ask the question, and he says, the kingdom of God is like a field. Or the kingdom of God is like a pearl. Let me tell you a story. A man has a barn. Right? Jesus, give us the answer, and Jesus tells a story. Why? We know this, right? Good teachers know this, right? We've got some educators in the room, right? When you can capture the heart and the emotion, it motivates, right? Versus just telling directly. The direct truth, direct statement would have been right, and Jesus often explains the parable, or often he'll state the truth and then tell the story. Um, but the story is powerful. That's, that's something of what Paul is doing here with the story of Sarah and Hagar, or Isaac and Ishmael. He's going to try to illustrate, to motivate the hearers. He's actually made this same point for two chapters. But now he's going to tell a story, a well-known story for a purpose. First, briefly, he lays out his point in a question. Um, go to the next slide before we get to the... 
the, the historic story. This verse 21, this is kind of the overarching thing. He says, Paul says, for it is written that Abraham, uh, no, I'm sorry. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, how do you not listen to the law? It's kind of his big, hey, hey, folks, there are false teachers coming to Galatia. They're influencing the Galatians. They're trying to put this heavy burden of the law, of, of rules and rituals on them. And he says, hey, you that are under the law, do you even know what the law's about? You talk about the law, but you've actually missed the whole purpose of the law. It's for a diff- different purpose than you think. So he kind of lays that out there, and he says, let me tell you a story. That doesn't make sense. I've said that for two chapters. Let me tell you a story uh, about this man with two sons. So we're going to look at the story. It's a historic story. Happened. We're going to look at how Paul interprets it as a sort of a spiritual story. And then we'll get finally to uh, some application. So first, historic story. Verse 22 and 23. We'll just read this part of it. For it is written that Abraham had two sons... One by a slave woman, one by a free woman, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according, uh, was born through the promise. Brett read part of it in Genesis 17, but Genesis 16 and 17 captured this story of Abraham and his wife Sarah, uh, and then they have, uh, and then and then the the mistress or the, the maidservant Hagar, uh, and how this dynamic unfolds. Uh, it's a true story, meaning it happened in time and space. It's recorded in Scripture as though it happened. And so we treat it as a true story. Abraham and Sarah were chosen by God that, that they would be the chosen people, that through them they would be blessed, but then through them the whole world would be blessed. They would have descendants more than the stars in the sky and more than the grain in the sea. This is what God said he would do. He had promised blessing through their seed, but... The decade had passed, right? <laughs> and made the promise, we're going to bless you with the seed, with the air. Decade passed, no child. They're getting old. Uh, it feels as though God had forsaken them. There was, Sarah was barren. Just a word, pastorally, as we think about this idea of infertility or barren. We need to know that that's among us. Um, it's always among the people of God. And so, as we think about that, that's a sensitive issue. As we, as the church grow and, and develop in loving one another, we need to learn to love and care for one another. Well, as as uh, me, me and my wife experienced early in our marriage, we experienced that, and we know the difficulty and the pain of that. And many of you, some of you, experienced that and miscarriage and other things. And so, uh, when we talk about this, we know this is a sensitive issue, and so we we, we handle it with care. Um, we need to pray for those. We need to comfort. We need to encourage uh, those in our midst. Um, that may find themselves in that place. Uh, yet if the, the issue of infertility is, is a big issue today, and it is, it's an enormous issue in the ancient world. Uh, a woman's worth and value in this day is tied up in being able to have children, right? And having an heir, and particularly a male heir, to carry on the lineage and the line. And so this was a big deal for Abraham and Sarah. And for Sarah, this was weighty. This was huge. And she was barren. She couldn't have children. And so it brought discouragement, even shame to Abraham and Sarah. And it brought difficulty in their relationship with God because God had made this big promise that through you, more descendants than the, sky, the stars in the heavens, and yet nothing. Ten years, nothing. Silence. Where are you, right? 
God had promised and had not come through, so there was tension with the Lord. So Sarah makes a plan. She says, I'll just take matters into my own hands. She talks to Abraham and says, hey, um, I have this maidservant, Hagar, and why don't you sleep with her? And the text says in Genesis that we can build our family through her. And Abraham agrees, and they have a son. His name is Ishmael. Fast forward, 14 years later, the now very, very old Abraham, 99 years to be exact, is given a child with the 90-year-old, once barren, Sarah. The text says, the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised to do. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. God had kept his promise. So one child with Hagar, Ishmael, one child with Sarah, Isaac. Paul sums it up in verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. That would be Hagar. While the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Um, Abraham, it seems like, in the, even though he agrees, uh, he agrees with Sarah to do this, Hebrews puts him as a man of faith. That he, he somehow knew, he believed God would provide. God would do what he said. God would bring this lineage and this legacy, this great inheritance. But he didn't know how. God would do it. How could God give him a son when his wife could not conceive? How could God give him a son in his old age? So he turned and did something that in that day would be perfectly uh, lawful. It would be normal. If you can't have a child and you have a, a maidservant, then you arrange it and you have a child and the Lord continues the lineage or the, the lineage is continued through them. Um, that's the way of the custom, the way of the culture, not the way of God, not the way of God's people. And so Abraham and Sarah decide not to wait on God for the supernatural means, but instead take matters in their own hand. And through Hagar, they attain this child through their own effort, through their own scheming, through their own way. This is sort of the, the ordinary way. And the way of Sarah and Isaac is the supernatural way. The story shows that uh, when human solutions are the answer to our problems, it doesn't go well. There would be tension. There would be conflict. Abraham and Sarah, they had struggles. And Hagar and Ishmael, Isaac, generations of struggle. But the story reveals that Abraham and Sarah do in the end trust the Lord. And God provides in a miraculous way. Okay, that's the backstory. That's the, that's the history. That's the story. It's a lot of, a couple chapters, summary. Um, Paul is taking a real story in history, but he's going to do something different with it here. Second point, he, he turns it into a, a spiritual story. It says in verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically or figuratively, some translations may say. These women are two covenants, so uh, Hagar is going to represent one, Sarah is going to represent another. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, where she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. That's referring to Sarah. 
This is going to interpret it allegorically. Hang in there with me. Uh, to allegory is a, there's a, when you, allegories, there's a secondary meaning. So there's something on the surface, but you find a, a different interpretation of those events, right? Um, and so that's what Paul is doing here. There's sort of a meaning under the meaning. And a couple of notes as we get started, things to note. One, um, in terms of biblical interpretation, we don't have the privilege as we read the Bible to do what Paul does. Uh, Paul takes a, a real event, a real story, and then he interprets it in a different way with a different meaning. There's some views of, of interpretation of the Bible. They do it allegorically. So there's Jonah and a whale, and they'll say, well, Jonah wasn't a real person. It certainly wasn't a whale. Jonah represents X, and the whale represents Y. Or, maybe more importantly, people say there's Adam and Eve, but um, there wasn't really a man named Adam. There wasn't really a woman named Eve. They rep- Adam represents humanity, right? Eve represents, uh, you know, male, female kind of thing. Um, but they weren't real historical figures. That's why I started with a historical story. It's a real story. Uh, that's a way of interpreting the Bible. It's called the allegorical interpretation. It's not helpful. We don't have the privilege of doing that. Uh, the Bible doesn't treat it that way. Paul wrote scripture so Paul can do that. Does that make sense? Paul's able to do something we're not able to do. He takes a true story, and then he's going to give it this spiritual meaning. I think it's important for us because you hear that a lot today about how to interpret the Bible um, the Bible speaks of those events in the Old Testament as real events with real meaning, and the New Testament uses them as real events with real meaning. But here, Paul does a twist. Paul interprets it, those events uh, with a different way. Does that make sense? Y'all follow that? Y'all bored out of your mind? You just went through a, a seminary hermeneutic class in two minutes right there. Um, second thing we need to think about before we get to the story um, is when you read the story in Genesis, there's a lot of problems with the story. Um, there's polygamy. There's concubines. Um, maidservant, some, some form of slavery. Um, and those are our problems when we read it, right? We read it, we're like, hang on a second. In the story, Sarah schemes, doesn't trust God, does the wrong thing, gets her husband to have, to have sex with her maidservant, to have a child, and then she ha- the maidservant has the child, and Sarah despises the maidservant, is jealous of her, has contempt for her, sends her away, right? Um, actually, the maidservant, Hagar and Ishmael, God himself meets them in the desert and rescues them and provides for them. So all that's going on, and Paul ignores it. And so, one of the things as we read the Bible, we have to ask the question, what's the purpose the author is using the story? And here, Paul's making one specific point, that these two women represent two ways of approaching God. All those other issues are important, they need to be addressed, they're not insignificant, but don't get sidetracked by those issues and miss what Paul is trying to do with this point. Does that make sense? It's easy to say, well, what about this, what about this, what about this? And then we miss the point Paul is trying to make. The Bible does speak to those issues. In fact, uh, it's important issues. I will say um, that the Bible uh, does not endorse polygamy or slavery uh, or concubines in any way. And when those things are present, it doesn't go well for those involved. And it doesn't go well here in this situation. But that's not what Paul's point is. We good? Table set? Okay, that's a lot of words. It's like a lot of work just to get to the point. But I don't want you to miss it. We don't interpret the Bible allegorically. Paul gets to do that. There's a lot of other issues. You could explore those. That's not what Paul's dealing with, so we're going to do what Paul's dealing with. 
So what's he doing here? It's really masterful. Remember, the false teachers were coming in Galatian. They were, they were coming from Jerusalem, and they were coming to Gentiles, people that didn't have the law, and they were telling them that they needed to add the Jewish law to their faith. These new Gentiles, like maybe you have come to faith in Christ, and they're saying, that's great, you're a Christian, that's great, you follow Jesus, follow Jesus, plus keep these Old Testament laws, like circumcision, like food laws, like all these calendars. They were adding these weights and these burdens to the Galatian people. They were saying, you can't truly be children of Abraham like us unless you follow the rules of Abraham. You follow the Jewish faith. For for the Jews, Abraham is of utmost importance. He is the father of the faith, right? Anybody learn, Father Abraham? Mm -hmm. Anybody learn that? Somebody sing, I don't sing. Had many sons. Okay. The Jews, Abraham's a big deal. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus gets in a a, a spat with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, about Abraham. This is a, a, a snippet of what's said. The Pharisees say to Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me. They go on, the Pharisees say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? Because you're more important than Abraham? Right, Abraham's a big deal. And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones, the religious people picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went to the temple. Um, that's a claim. Jesus is saying, uh, I'm, I'm in time and space now, but I existed before Abraham was. Um, to be truly a follower of Abraham was to embrace Jesus. And they knew it was a claim of deity, so they picked up stones. But the point here I want you to see is that Abraham is a big, big deal. The father of their faith. And so Paul does, this is a, you're the man moment for Paul. It's really masterful what he does. He's brilliant. He, he's cutting. Paul says, you're right. You're right. You're right, Judaizers. Uh, Abraham uh, is a big deal. Um, and actually, there, there is a way to be related to Abraham. There's actually two ways. He had two sons. You remember that? He had one son the right way and one son the wrong way. He's picking a fight. He equates the Jews with Abraham, not at his best, not through Sarah and Isaac, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He says, you're related to Abraham, but it's through Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael. You Jews that love the law, you love Abraham and Moses, you're illegitimate children is what he says. Right? You're through the mistress. These people love the law, Jerusalem, the place of the law, right? The place of the Torah, the temple, this great high view, Abraham. Paul says, you're related to Abraham. It's just not what you think. You're actually not true children of Abraham. He calls them illegitimate sons. Hagar and Ishmael represent the law of, of Sinai, He says, the earthly city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city. It's where the Jews lived. It's where they were were proud of the Jewish heritage. And Sinai is where Moses got the law. So the law got taken to Jerusalem. So he's tying these great images, all their heritage, right? 
tying all these great things together. It's like tying the, the best pictures of America, you know, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, and then tying them to the worst possible moments. <laughs> He's tying the law and Jerusalem with Hagar and Ishmael. Ishmael is the, the father of the Arabic people. That's why it says Hagar is in Arabia. He's putting together the best images and the worst possible things, and he's smashing them together. <laughs> he's rubbing their face in it. And he says um, that uh, Hagar is it's enslaved. She's enslaved. You are actually children of slavery. You're in bondage to legalism. You think you're right with God through your rules and your, your rituals, but you're really in slavery. You don't even know God. Your Jesus plus the law means there's no Jesus because there's only one way to God. It's, it's masterfully done. It's the worst possible things you could think of. The false teachers had come from Jerusalem. They saw themselves as the legacy of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they were really the legacy of Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael. Two ways to live. One, through Hagar's son, through the flesh, through manipulation, through, through making life work on your own, for trying to get to God on your own, for scheming and manipulating, trying to make it work out the sort of ordinary way, take matters in your own hands, or, in contrast, there's the way of Sarah. She's the other woman. Again, one slice. We know she didn't do it well first, but then she comes to be the, the, the mother of faith. She's equated with the heavenly Jerusalem above, her, this true home. She is our mother. She is our mother in that she has learned. What did she learn? She learned to cease trying to manipulate and to earn God's favor and to get it right on her own. At 90 years old, there was no possible way. She couldn't scheme and manipulate, and God did what? God was faithful to his promise. God would rescue. God would intervene. God would work. It's about trust. It's about faith. Our own salvation is not scheming. It's not, it's, it's not trying to make it happen. It's not trying to get to God on our own. It's God has to rescue us. That's the gospel. God has to come. Our own faith day to day. It's not, we can't take matters in our own hands. The situation's not going, so I'm going to control it. I'm going to force it, and it's going to happen. How does that turn out? That's the way of Hagar. It's the way of slavery. The way of Sarah, it's coming to learn to trust and to let go, to follow. And that's freedom versus slavery. So, hope you followed all that. There's a historic story, but the Paul does this reinterpreted uh, thing really masterfully uh, in this allegorical way. But finally, what's the, uh, what's the application? Um, there's this quote from Isaiah 54. He says, uh, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Do you hear that? Now you, brothers, he goes on to say, like Isaac are children of promise. What is this about? This is a quote from some 600 years before Paul. So after Abraham, 600 years before Paul, and where is Israel? God's chosen people, they have been disciplined. They have turned to other gods. They've worshipped idols, so they've been put to exile. They've been kicked out of the promised land, and where are they? 
all hope is lost. They're weak, they're lifeless, they're destitute, they're powerless, they're being ruled by the nations. The nations around them are powerful, are mighty. Babylon is growing, it's it's in control, and they are what? They have no hope. They're failures. It's in that context, God says this. Let me paraphrase. He says something like, Now that you're helpless, you will see that it is the weak in whose lives my grace works. The strong are too busy relying on themselves. I will make you numerous and great. Isaiah, channeling Genesis 16, um, looks at the two women. One is fertile and young, and one is old and barren. And God says, I'm going to save the world through the old and barren. I'm going to save the world in my way, in my terms. It's interesting because it's actually through the lineage uh, of this barren woman, Sarah, that another woman would come that wouldn't be uh, a likely candidate to be pregnant. She would be a virgin. You know, her name was Mary. Um, she would become pregnant, give birth to a son. She would be the promised seed that Abraham and Sarah were gifted. Jesus would come through that lineage to save, to save the world. Um, it's grace, grace for the barren. Grace flows downhill. When you think you don't need it, when you think you got it together, when you think you're smart, when you think you, you, you figured it out, um, there's no need of grace, right? Grace doesn't come. But when you're low and you're humble and you're broken like in exile in the wilderness, grace flows. And Paul takes this story, he takes this verse from, from Isaiah, channeling Genesis 16, and he uses it masterfully again with the Galatians. He says to the Galatians, um, you're beaten up spiritually by these, uh, by these false teachers. They're putting this heavy burden on you. They've told you, you're Gentiles, you're too polluted, you're too flawed, you're too weak, you're too barren. You've got to add these laws, these, these legalistic rituals. You've got to add things to make faith right. It's not Jesus alone, it's Jesus plus these things, right? You're too far away. You must do these things to be included. But Paul turns the table and comforts the Gentiles in a, par- in a powerful way. Listen to these words uh, Tim Keller says in his commentary on this section. He says this, You Gentiles, you Galatians, you are the barren woman. If salvation is by works, then only the fertile can have children. Only the morally able and strong, the people from good families, the folks with good records can be spiritually fruitful. Enjoy the love and joy of God and transform the lives of others. But if the gospel is true, it does not matter who you are or where you were. You may be a spiritually and morally outcast, as marginal as the single barren woman was in the ancient days. It does not matter. You will bear fruit, fruit that lasts. The gospel says grace is not just for fertile Hagar's. But for barren Sarah's, if Sarah can have a future, anyone can. It's not only that um, 
the gospel speaks uh, to the barren, but the gospel is especially for the barren. Who does Jesus criticize the most? The religious leaders. He says to them things like, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are closer to the kingdom of God than you are. Why? Because they repent. They know they're broken. They know their sin. But the tax collectors and religious leaders hold their head high and think that they're morally superior. They're self-righteous. This group sees that all their, their ways of managing life, all their strategies to make it work, to, to pull leverage, to manipulate, to try to get what they want in life, have all failed, so they're broken. They have nowhere else to go but Jesus. But the religious leaders, those that are proud, their schemes have organized their world to keep Jesus far away. They look nice. They look dressed on Sunday. But their heart has not revealed their need for Jesus. Jesus says hard things. Do you know your spiritual barrenness? First application. Do you know that? Not, I don't care how many kids you have. I don't care about how much money you have. I don't care about your reputation, your professional status. Do you know how spiritually broken you Do you know you need grace? Like, yeah, I need grace, but I mean, I've, I've got a pretty good lineage. My family's been Christian for generations. I've done these things right. I put myself in a good position. Do you know you need grace? And you see that the person on the street, you say, without the grace of God, yet, yet but I, right? Do you rest on grace alone? Final and briefly, last point. It's kind of surprising here, application. He does this thing at the end. Um, I'm not going to read all of it for time's sake. But there's a final lesson between Isaac and Ishmael. He says, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that, at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is also now. He goes on to say, cast out the slave woman. What's he talking about? The one aborting, born according to the flesh will persecute according to the Spirit. Second application, we will face persecution. And often, um, from the religious, <laughs> interesting enough, often from the Ishmaels of the world. We need to know that the children of the slave, those seeking salvation through law obedience, will always persecute the children of the free woman. Those like us that say salvation is by grace alone in Christ alone. Nothing to earn. Why would, why would the religious persecute people like us? Because we're tapping into the self-righteousness, right? We're tapping in. We're saying all your righteousness doesn't earn you anything before God. It's only the work of Jesus, right? And that's offensive. Because they've built their life. We can build our life on our religious moral righteousness has no merit before God. It's threatening. In the story, Isaac, or Ishmael, the illegitimate son, mocks Isaac. He laughs at him. He derides him. You see the history throughout of Isaac and Ishmael, the lineage. You see mocking. You see tension. You see strife. You see persecution. The religious uh, will always persecute those that love grace. In the Middle Ages, the the Catholic Church would ferociously attack 
the Protestant minority that was preaching a grace-only message. Here, Paul is being, is being attacked because he's preaching to the Gentiles a grace-only message. Jesus would be attacked by who? Who started the insurrection? The religious leaders, because Jesus was preaching a salvation not by works, but by grace alone. It will always come under attack, yes, by the secular world, but also by the religious community. I'll finish with this quote. John Stott says this, The persecution of the true church is not always by the world, who are strangers, but by our half-brothers, religious people, the nominal church. The greatest enemy of the evangelical faith today are not unbelievers, but the church, the establishment, the hierarchy. Isaac is always mocked and persecuted by Ishmael's. Maybe we're not persecuted in the capital P sense, but mocking, being derided for our faith. Ishmael will persecute Isaac. Um, so we think about, as we, as we leave, um, application. Two ways, two kingdoms. One, self-attainment, the way of Hagar, which leads to slavery. One, the way of faith, and trusting in the supernatural and the promise of God that leads to freedom and leads to life. It's a way of grace. And if we hold on to grace and we preach grace and we talk about grace and we offer grace and it impacts us and it transforms us and then we spread it to other people and we're not, we're not self-righteous, we're not judging, we're bringing people in to communicate the grace. This saved me. I, I was there. God's grace came to me. As we preach and teach that, people will not like it. They won't like it. Hold fast to the grace of God. May we know our barrenness. It's in our barrenness that the power of God, the power of Christ, is made perfect. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is powerful. Even when it's complex, it's powerful and mighty. You do things that we can't imagine, we wouldn't think of. We wouldn't write the story. We wouldn't think of the story. We wouldn't have understood it the way Paul understands it, and yet you do. And you gave the words of Holy Scripture so that we could be changed and challenged. And we could think, am I, am I living in slavery? Does this story that we captured that was so familiar to the, to, to the, to the modern world, so familiar to the, to the world of Paul's day and to the Jewish world, would we know it? Would it, would it encompass something for us? Would we have a knee-jerk reaction? Yeah, we're part of Abraham, but which line? The ones that manipulate and scheme and rely on our religion, the ones that rely and fall on our face before you and say, grace, it's all of grace. May that be us. May that be us, Jesus, we pray. We ask this in your name. Amen. Um, it's good about the Lord's Supper. We have it weekly. is because you hear a lot of words. Sometimes, you know, maybe you do this when you listen to sermon. I do. So if you do, no offense. You hear so many words, you just kind of tune out, right? Sometimes the voice inflections catches you, but you kind of doze off. <laughs> uh, you're not offending me. We have the Lord's Supper every week because we need to see the gospel. Not just hear it, we need to see it. We need to know that um, the way of the religious world apart from Jesus brings death. And it, it brings death to us, um, but we can actually have life. Speaking of life. The herds are here. I'll pause for the joy. It can bring life. But the only reason it brings life 
It's because the religious leaders got what they wanted. Right? The religious leaders got to Jesus. They, they, the Son of God came to earth to save, and humanity, we got our hands around the Son of God, and as soon as we got our hands around him, we killed him. Think about that. We finally got to him. He finally came, and we, we so despised him because he's such an affront to our self-righteousness that we, we, we killed him. Jesus explains that to his disciples the night before he was betrayed. He's in the upper room, celebrating the Passover meal, and he says, this is my body, and it is and will be broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood that will be shed. It will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. You know what we come to Jesus with? Nothing. And yet we can still come. (laughs) When you come to take communion, you don't come up and say, I've had a really good week. I've had a lot of quiet times, you know. I went to that retreat. I'm really feeling like I turned the corner. That you come up here on our hands and knees crawling. It's just mercy, right? And grace just flows and pours down, and it's pictured in the bread and the wine. It says, I've done nothing for it, and yet you feed me again. Like Our kids don't do anything. They don't make any income, and yet we feed them every day. A lot. And they keep coming. That's what the gospel does. It feeds us day by day by day when we have nothing to offer. That's the message Paul brought to the Galatians. It's a message for us. It's bread and wine. It's the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, these are simple elements, things we do daily, eating and drinking, and yet somehow when we're together and we think about it, they picture for us what you have done for us. May you refresh us. May you nourish us. Some of us are, are, are we're malnourished. We're spiritually anorexic. We don't have enough. We need to eat again. We need to know the gospel. We need to be fed. Would you feed us now?